Amen. Good morning. How are you? Good. Ephesians chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the seat in front of you. Uh, by all means, turn there. If you actually, if you borrow one of our Bibles, it's on the seat. It's on page 976. I can help you get there quicker. Uh, but it's important to follow along each week. There's a reason we don't put the verses that we're in, the passage that we're in, on the screen is we really want to get you into the Bible that you get to read along, and especially if you bring your Bible and you get more familiar with your Bible, that's super important to us. So in Ephesians 1, we began the book, that the letter that Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. Now, this is a church that he had begun, and he had pastored, he had spent a few years there, and then he handed off to a group of elders to lead in his absence. He goes his way. He's actually arrested in Ephesus in the beginning of his journey in chains to Rome, where he will eventually die for his faith, begins here. And so we're reading what we call the early letters of Paul, the, the letters that he wrote earlier in his ministry. And typically, they deal with him establishing the gospel in the church, right? That his job or his emphasis, his focus in these early letters is to clarify the gospel, to make sure that each church has a robust or a deep or a, a full understanding of the gospel. And again, when we say gospel here, or when the Bible talks about the good news, it isn't just something that introduces you to your faith. It's not just an evangelistic message. But the gospel is also the very power that keeps us day-to-day -day in our faith. And the gospel is the very hope, the very sureness, the, the very, uh, just the joy that we have that we know that when we stand before God eventually, which we all will, that we will stand there in Christ and that we will stand there redeemed. And so the gospel is much more than this you know, evangelistic message you might think of, but it is the very power that we stand in, the very power that puts us in front of God in a good way in the end, right? So last week, as we open up the letter to the church in Ephesus, Paul begins after introducing himself and saying, this is to the church in Ephesus, to the saints that are in Ephesus. And again, saints are living people, the church, right? Not venerated dead people that had a miracle and lived a good life or whatever, it, that they're living followers of Jesus. And then he goes on to kind of the longest sentence in the entirety of the New Testament, and we actually in English break it up into three sentences. It's, it's one in Greek. About what God has done for you, what God has done to you and for you to save you. And that the sovereignty of God over salvation is the only security we have in salvation. That if God saves us, we can know that we are saved. If we think we save us, then of course we could mess it up, right? And so in God's sovereignty, we also have a security. Security does not mean that then we get to go do whatever we want to, because then we have to go back to question number one, are you really changed by God, Right? But if you've been transformed by God, if you've been saved by God, if you've been, if you've been redeemed in Christ, you will be changed. And, and of course, that always takes time. And we're never perfect. We always have things that can be changed and made to look more like Jesus. We call that sanctification, being made more like Christ. 
but we know that we are forgiven and that we are seated securely in Christ and that God will begin or God will finish, complete the work that he's begun in us through Christ. That gospel is applied to us through the Holy Spirit and it progressively grows in us as we feed it like, like we're doing right now. And so we're going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to pick up there. We're actually going to go two verses before that at the end of one. But I want to give you a main idea today. So today we're going to look at from death to life, from death and sin to life in Christ. We're made alive. Now, we just sang a song called Made Alive, right? It was a good choice, so kudos to Alex, right? So made alive in Christ. We are made alive in Christ as a new people. We call that the church. We are distinct from the world, yet we remain in the world to do the work that God has created that should be us for, created us for, right? So the question is, when we are saved, we are saved to what, right? And there's going to be a misunderstanding we're going to deal with today, and there's going to be an outcome we talk about. But when last week we read about the adoption of God, that God adopts us into his family, we become sons and daughters of God. When someone is adopted... They're not just adopted and that changes who they are, but it adopts them into a family. Does that make sense? Right? So we are saved from being orphans, but we are saved to a family. And that's kind of God's premise here. That's why we're going to back up to the last couple verses of what we read last week. So Ephesians 1, all the way down to verse 22, it says this. And he, meaning God, put all things under his feet, meaning Jesus, his feet, And gave him, Jesus, as head over all things to, who? The church, right? Gave him head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. So this is talking about God sovereignly placing all things under Christ. And Paul calls those who are living under Christ, he calls them the church, right? Now, when Paul talks about the church, he is not talking about the universal or, or the universal church, meaning the church everywhere, meaning Christians in Africa and Christians that lived 2,000 years ago and Christians that will live tomorrow or, or in 1,000 years or whatever. He is writing, remember, to the saints in Ephesus. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. When he talks about the church, he's talking to them about their church right? The local church. When the New Testament speaks of the church almost exclusively, it is talking about the local church. All the one another's love one another, forgive one another, bear with one another's burdens, all the one another's. They are impossible to do with people on the other side of the planet. They're impossible, more impossible to do even with people a thousand years ago. So never really talking about the universal church, meaning the formal all those who will believe, talking about the local church, the local body of believers that you who are in Christ are a part of. So I'm going to put this on the screen, the local church. The church biblically refers to the local church, not a vague term meaning all who are Christians. You can only live out the expectations of the church locally. Love one another. Bear with one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Right? Encourage one another. Gather with one another. All those descriptive one another's can only be done in the local church. Make sense? Always writing to the local church. When he writes to Galatia, he says to the churches, plural, in Galatia. 
churches, meaning several of them, need to apply this thing in their local church. To Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus, the church, right? All right, Ephesians 2, it's going to seem like a topic shift, but it isn't. So bear with me. Ephesians 2, starting in verse 1, says this. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. Now let, let's pause and kind of set this conversation up for today. What can dead people do? Nothing. You sure? I mean, there's some zombie TV shows that are weird, right? What can dead people do? Are you sure? I, have ima- I imagine by the end of today, you're going to try and tell me that dead people can do stuff. They can vote. Oh, oh I, I didn't hear that, and I didn't say that. All right, so oddly, that may be the one exception today. All right, so we're going to go with nothing. What can dead people do? Nothing. Okay, stay with that answer. That's the right answer. All right, back at verse 1 vote. All right. All right. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. All right. So here's what Paul's doing. He is describing for you your condition apart from Christ. Your condition, my condition, our condition apart from Christ. This is what he's describing. So You were dead in sin. What can dead people do? Okay, stay with it. You followed the course of this world, right? You are a part of the world. You follow the course of the world. You did what the world did, which is different than what what Jesus would call you to do. You were dead in your sins. You followed the course of the world. You followed the prince of the power of the air. Now, this is a unique reference. This is a very Ephesian reference. Ephesus was the home to Artemis. The god, a goddess Artemis in Roman, in Roman practice, the pantheon of their idols. Artemis, also known as Diana, for you Wonder Woman fans, right? So Artemis was known as the goddess of the air. So he's saying, you followed the prince of the power of the air. He's telling them, listen, when you follow anything other than Jesus, you are following Satan. But he ties it right into their Ephesian culture right? If he was writing to a place that was, of course, Islam hasn't come about yet. But if if that were true, he would make maybe a reference to Allah. Like he's doing that. He's tying it into their their culture, right? You followed the prince of the power of air. So apart from Christ now, we are dead in sin, right? We follow the world. We follow now Satan, he says, And then he says, you were a son or daughter of disobedience. Your family was the family disobedient to God, not obedient to God. You were dead in your sins. You followed the world. You followed Satan. You were sons and daughters of disobedience, right? It's a pretty dark description of us apart from Christ. If you want another one, not now, later, look at Romans 3. Starts in verse like four or five, whatever. It's, it's a series of quotes of 27 verses that Paul packs into one list. No one seeks God. No, not one. All have gone astray. Their feet are quick to shed blood. Their, lo- their mouths spew the venom of evil. I'm like, he just goes off, right? Because he wants us to understand our condition apart from Christ 
and how bad it is and how separate it is from God. Okay? Dead in sin, following the world, following Satan, sons and daughters of disobedience. Verse 3. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So now who is he talking about? Like what group of people? How many people are like that before Christ? He says, among whom we all, right? We all were dead in our sin. We all follow the world. We all followed Satan. Following the world seems a little less than following Satan. We were sons and daughters of disobedience. See, we act like we're just not obedient yet. We're sons and daughters. We're the family of disobedience, right? We're the family on the block where the police always show up at their house. I got to go with the reference I understand. So, you know. But he says, among whom we all once lived, we were all dead. We were all disobedient. We all followed the world, followed Satan, right? And here's what he says. This is our nature from birth. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were by nature, by birth, we were children of wrath, deserving of punishment, wrath. The wrath of God, like the rest of mankind. The only difference now that he's writing to the Ephesian church is, but you have been saved by God. You have been moved from that into the family of God, right? You who were once dead in your sin, and I want to get ahead of myself, but he's going to say, are now alive in Christ. You who were once sons and daughters of disobedience, like he said in the last chapter, now you're sons and daughters of God, right? The condition before is apart from Christ. The condition after is what he's talking about today. So our problem today is that we believe that people are typically good. You don't know how many memorial services, funerals, things that I've done where they're like, so-and-so is such a good person. You're like, not going to cut it, right? They're in Christ, so they're not in Christ. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just trying to be biblical, right? You're either a child of God or you're a child of Satan, the world, it's all the same thing, right? I don't have to get you to be an atheist to send you to hell. I just have to get you outside of Jesus, right? Or keep you outside, whatever that might be, right? That's what he's saying. By nature, we're born children of wrath. See, our issue is that we think that people are typically very good or fairly good. We grade on a curve. Well, they're not really Mother Teresa, but they're not Hitler. Okay. By the way. Apart from Jesus, Mother Teresa also would be, right, children of wrath. See, understanding our depravity, understanding our sinfulness, understanding our condition apart from Christ, and and, and the grave issue that we are apart from Christ helps us to understand our salvation, right? Because if we're all typically pretty good people, I mean, we all want the best. We all want to go to heaven, See, none of that's really true. We're all evil people running headlong into hell. Right? She liked that. Okay, good. So <laughs> the rest of you are like, I don't know. But it, right? Well, we like to minimize that. Well, when you minimize the condition, our condition apart from Christ, what you do is you minimize what Jesus has done. You minimize what God has had to do 
to rescue you from that. You see, if you're dead at the bottom of an ocean, that's different than, hey, I don't swim well, I might be able to get back on my own, you might have to help, right? So the condition apart from Christ is painted so clearly so that we understand what theologically we call our depravity, our complete and utter sinfulness and death dead in sin. Now, clearly we're not physically dead, we're spiritually dead, right? Go back to Genesis, and as God tells Adam and his wife, he says, listen, all of this is for you. I created paradise for you. I created the garden. I've placed you in the garden. All of it is for you. All of it that bears fruit is good for you, except that one in the middle, don't don't eat that, right? We hear that, and you're like, well, why? Well, because he wants them to obey. That's our job is obey God. But he gave them hundreds of things that are good, one thing that's bad, but because of this, I'm, I'm that guy that doesn't really want to walk on your lawn until I see the sign that says, stay off my, my lawn. <laughs> now your lawn looks really good to walk on, right? And that's what happens. And sin enters into human history. But we see that as pretty innocuous. We see that as disobedient. But God says, don't eat of the fruit of that tree in the center of the garden, because on that day you will surely die. Now, they live beyond that. They don't physically die. They die spiritually. So we are born physically alive, spiritually dead. That's why Jesus in John chapter 3, those famous words, you must be born again. You must be made spiritually alive because you're spiritually dead, separated from God, children of wrath. You are born dead in your sins. That's what he's talking about. Now, what can dead people do? All right, I'm going to hold you to that, just for the record, all right? Verse 4, but God, right? We Big butts. We love big butts. So, uh, big, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. I told you I needed a break. We're going on sabbatical. I know. So, all right. So, if you're a guest here, that's totally how we always are, unfortunately. Anyhow, so, all right. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, right? Why does God make us alive? Why does God save us when we have nothing that we can do, nothing we can contribute, when we're actually following the world, following the Satan, we're we're disobedient, when we're running away from God? Why? But God, being rich in mercy, because he is abundantly merciful to us, because he is great in his love for us, because God is merciful and loving, but God... Verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us. Now, let me pause. Loved who? You guys following along? All right. Loved who? Us. Singular, plural. Okay, this isn't isn't English class, right? Like, plural. He's talking to whom? The church. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, repeats himself, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. He blurts out, by grace you have been saved. He is going to say that again in a minute, but it's like he can't stop himself. By grace you've been saved. He just can't help himself in the middle of another thought. He says, by grace you have been saved. So what is our condition before Christ? Dead in sin. What can dead people do? Okay, good. What has God done for us? 
He's made us alive in Christ from death to life, right? Why does God make us alive in Christ? Because he is rich in mercy and because he loves us with such a great love. Why? Who knows? Because we're running the other way, right? It's like we're running into traffic and we're going to die. This is what God is snatching us up and saving us. Just like you would do if you had a little child, we're out here and someone's going to dart onto Bloomfield. You don't care what their will is. You don't care what they think. You don't care. You love them enough to grab them, set them down in the parking lot, and deal with it later, right? Because if you care, you're not going to go, well, I hope they choose to turn this way, right? You're going to, like, let's save them from traffic. Because they'll never choose to come this way. They're running that way because they're dead in their sins, because they're sons and daughters of disobedience. They're following the world. They're following Satan. And so God, sovereignly saving, grabbing, rescuing people, and he goes from dead in sin, he calls us now alive in Christ. Verse 5, even when we, plural, were dead in our trespasses, made us, plural, alive together with Christ, by grace you, and I know it's the same thing in English, but this is you, plural, have been saved. All right, verse 6, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him, you see the plural continuum, in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, right? Raised up who? Us. Who's he writing to? Who's the us? The church. Verse 7. So in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus, right? So why is this so important, right? Because we've lost the value for the gathered church today. When Paul writes, who does he write to? The church. There's two exceptions. One when he writes to Timothy, one when he writes to Titus to encourage them and equip them to be better leaders of the, want to take a guess? The church. Otherwise, he writes to the churches. He writes over here to the church in Ephesus. Hey, you, local body Christian followers of Jesus, those who are dead in your sins, but now made alive together in Christ, here's what I have for you. Because you're the church, you're the gathered people of God, right? That's why we're pushing that so much. You cannot effectively be the church online, right? Because you are not gathering. You're observing the gathered church. There's exceptions, right? I'm always very clear on this, right? There are exceptions. There are shut-ins. There are people who can't come. We want to care and provide for them, we hope the stranger sees this and says, okay, they don't seem too crazy, we'll go visit. <laughs> Maybe that's a vain hope, who knows? But it is not for the church. Because the church gathered, it's impossible to live out the things that Jesus calls us to do when we don't gather, right? There's a season, there's a time COVID hit, there's a right way to be submitted to authority and figure it out, but that season must be short, right? Because then we, we gather back together. But see, getting together in the same room isn't enough either. The slip was this. When you walk in the door, and if you show up a little bit late, but you made sure you got your coffee, you got your donut, but you're 10 minutes late to service, right? Hopefully some of you feel convicted. Okay, so when you do that, right, and you show up here and you just watch, you don't sing, 
You don't really pray. Alex led us through a time of contemplative prayer. Pray, we pray. Then Alex played for us, right? When you don't pray, when you're just kind of thinking about, oh, the game's on later, or, oh, I got this thing to do, or whatever, right? When, you, when you're not here with your Bible open and you're engaged in the... When you're just observing, right? Kind of watching the church gather. And again, if you're new, maybe you're just figuring this out. Cool, take your time, figure it out. But if all you do is show up and attend but don't participate, you can see how easy it was to make that shift to online. Because you're just watching anyways. Now I can do it at home with my own coffee and my own donut on my couch, right? Being the church is different. You were dead in your sins. You've been made alive in Christ. Why? Because I've got something for you as a people. So let me put this note on the screen. Needing to gather church. If we think we can be faithful followers of Jesus without gathering, we believe a lie. The one another's must be lived out, right? The one another commands in Scripture cannot be accomplished alone. And so I'll take this one step further. What about the people that can't come? I mean the infirmed, the, 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 the actually their health prevents them, right? Well, then we, the church, need to go to them because we're the church. That's why these things are in the plural. That's why it's not, Jeff, you were once dead in your sin, now you are alive in Christ. By grace, you, singular, have been saved because, I don't know, because. Amen. No. By grace, you guys have been saved to a family, right? Verse 8. For by grace, you've been saved through faith. Now, here he repeats himself, obviously. Second time he says this. By grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. Notice as soon as he talks about faith, you're like, aha, that's what I do. He's like, not of your own doing. So that no one, or it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so here's where faith comes in, right? So you are dead in your sins. Dead people can do nothing, right? We've already accomplished that. So what do you do? Would you just ask for forgiveness? What do you do? All right. Good. You can do nothing. You're dead. You with me? By grace. Grace is the unmerited favor or gift of God. By grace, you have been saved through faith. What is the gift of God? Your very faith is a gift of God. That God wakes you and makes you alive in Christ, enables you to have faith. Another passage says, to each is given. To each, in the church, right? To each is given a measure of faith. Right? Each person that is made alive in Christ is given the faith to believe, to respond, to walk with Jesus. By grace, you have been saved through faith. By grace, the unmerited gift of God has been given to you, your ability to walk with Jesus. And he quickly says, this isn't something you did. This is not a work you accomplished while I went down on the field at Angel Stadium and I said the prayer. Or I went forward at the end of a service and I said the prayer and I got the Bible. It's not about you. You're responding to what God is doing. By grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Verse 9, not a result of work so that no one may boast. We're dead, able to do nothing. I'm glad you didn't answer that question. So what do we do? Just ask for forgiveness? No, you're dead. 
You get made alive by God through Christ, given faith so that now you who are alive can respond to Jesus. You with me? It's a little theological. It's a little nerdy. It's a little in the weeds. I know. But the idea is we're painting the picture of how separate from God we are in our sin, apart from Christ, how depraved, how evil, how, how we are running the other direction, that we're not good people, that we're evil people, apart from Christ. And so that when we understand our condition, then we understand the gigantic leap that it took for Jesus to rescue us. And when we hear that we were all by nature born children of wrath, then we understand why God pours out his wrath on his son, Jesus, on the cross. Because someone has to take that penalty for you and for me. Because when God created us and made us, he designed us to be worshipers of him, meaning he designed us to be obedient. That's why the one random tree in the middle called the knowledge of, the, of good and evil, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. See, some knowledge is not meant for you. Ask anybody who's been sexually abused or has experienced sexual violence. They have a knowledge about something that is not good for you. It was, in, it was something you should not know. See, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were never supposed to know evil. And because of that, they die that day. They spiritually die. And then their children are born spiritually dead, by nature, children of wrath, sons and daughters of disobedience. What happens to their first two sons? God has called them to worship. They go on to worship, and one worships on God's terms, and one tries to worship on his own terms. So God calls him out. He gives him a chance to return, but he doesn't like that, so he kills his brother. It's getting bad fast, right? It's spiraling out of control. It's not just, hey, all good people, we're just a little off track. No, evil, fast. Because when we understand our condition apart from Christ, then we understand how much it was that God had to do to rescue us in Christ. When we recognize that we're dead, we don't try and add our works to our salvation, the salvation that Christ has accomplished for us because we couldn't. And we understand how great that is, then we understand how great a Savior we have. If you have a little problem, you only need a little Savior. When your condition of sin is great, when your separation from God is great, you have a great Savior. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. This is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Now listen... Verse 10, for we, plural, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Right? This is the Paul-James conversation. Paul says, you're saved by grace to do good things. James, the author James in the Bible, the half-brother of Jesus, says this, I will show you my faith by what I do. Like, I live it out. I don't earn it. He says, I'll, show, I'll reveal what I believe by how I live. I'll show you my faith by the way I live. They're not saying anything different. They're both saying, I'll show you my faith by what I do, or because God has given you a faith, because you walk with Jesus, you're called to do corporately work that God has prepared in advance. That's verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared 
beforehand that we collectively should walk in them, right? Our work in Christ is a response. The loving our neighbor, right? The loving the shut-in, the inferred, those who are in need, right? The proclamation of the gospel to the world that we live in, the serving our community, the loving one another, the caring for the needs of one another, all that. We're saved to that. Verse 11, therefore, always points backwards. Therefore, because of what we've just covered, therefore, remember. Now he's saying remember, call, recall. Do this again. Therefore, remember that at one time you... Gentiles in the flesh, the Ephesians were primarily non-Jewish, so Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He says, listen, remember, at one point, you were outside the family of God, okay? Go back to Galatians. We talked a lot about the, the Jewish Christian, Gentile Christian struggles they had in Galatia, but he's already tackled that. He's just saying, remember, you were outside the family of God at one point. Verse 12, remember, he says, remember twice, right? Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth or the community of Israel and the strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. If you think the dead in your sins and children of disobedience was a rough description, listen to this one. Remember, you were separated from Christ. You were outside the faith. Remember, you, plural, were alienated from the commonwealth, the collective gathering. You were strangers to the promises. You didn't have any promises of God in your life. You, plural, were without hope. You were dead in your sin. There was no hope for you. You were without God. You were children of wrath, right? He's actually repeating himself, reminding them at one point when that was true of you, when you were outside of Christ, this is what you were missing. Part of that is you were without a community of faith. You were not only hopeless and without God and without promise eternally, strangers, but you were outside the commonwealth. You were outside the gathered believers. You were outside the family of God. Remember, his initial image for salvation back in chapter 1 is adoption. He doesn't use that randomly. He doesn't leave that. He says, therefore, therefore, since you understand this, since you understand what adopted means, let me, let me play this out. At one time, you were an orphan. You were separate from the family of God. You were children of wrath. You were without hope. You were dead in your sins. But God, who is great in mercy, who loves us with a great love, has now adopted us. The implications now, now we're the family of God. Verse 13, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, right? But now, you're not alone. You're not without hope. You're not separate. Now, you're a part of the family of God. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. Listen, who has made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Their issue was separating based on ethnicity. That was their struggle 2,000 years ago of a, a false understanding, and they would separate based on ethnicity. Our problem is we choose separation because of our individualism in America. Are you with me? Our struggle is similar, but we choose individualism, not an ethnicity. We separate ourselves out thinking we can live our faith out alone because of the embedded American individualism. Now, there's parts to that that are really helpful. 
Eventually, when we talk about, you know, like Paul's language to the church in Corinth, that you are members of a body, like the individual things, your, your gifting or your personality, your skill set, the things that God has given you is different, that's good. But they're only different when they're brought together. We're not individuals. We're a family, right? If you have a gift of speaking, it's really hard to do that alone. You can. People with a van and a net might show up and pull you away. But what if you have a, the gift of hospitality? Well, it's hard to do that without people. The gift of service, the gift of worship. Or the, I mean, yes, can you worship alone? Sure, but you can't use that for the one another's, for the church. That you are saved to do good works, plural, collectively, corporately. Because once you didn't have this, and now, because of Christ, you have it. We don't appreciate it, so we don't take it. Right? We separate because of our individual. Listen, Jesus is my personal Savior is not a biblical statement. I defy, defy you. Find me that in Scripture. Jesus is Savior, and yes, he's saved personally. Yes, that's great. But I'm not the only person on the planet, nor the first, nor the best, nor the last, or anything. He is my Savior. He's your Savior. He's your Savior. He's your Savior. Questions about some of you, but we'll stop there. So, you know, but he is your Savior, right? You have questions about me. I get it. I totally get it. But he's not my person. He died for the church. I'm a part of the church, therefore he's my Savior. Because of my great big need, I have a great big Savior. And because of our collective corporate brokenness, need, I have a great big Savior. You have a great big Savior. We, Generations Church, we have a great big Savior. We have a loving, merciful God. Let's read a few verses together. This is more Jewish than it is not. So what does it read through? Verse 15, by abolishing the law, the commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create himself one new man in the place of two, in other words, uniting them, in our case, bringing us together, Right? so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Our, our version of that needs to be killing the individualism. That your individualism needs to ex be expressed together, not alone. It's just not me and my Bible out in the wilderness okay. That's not okay. Because as I read the Bible, it's going to call me to love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, bear with one another, all those things that I can't do alone the church. And he came, verse 17, and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, right, collectively have access in one spirit. Our unity is the spirit of God to the Father. Access in one spirit to the Father, verse 19. Listen, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. Citizens joined together, right? Citizens. With the saints, the saints is the church, living followers of Jesus in a local body. That's who he's talking to. But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Modern day to day, we call the household of God a church, right? Sadly, we start to call the Sunday morning service church, but it's not church. This is a worship service. We are the church. The building's not the church. The church owns the building. With me? You are now members of the household of God. 
Sounds like you have to belong to something. You have to be a part of something. Citizens, you belong to something. You are a part of something. You have gifts and rights and a contribution and things that you need and things that you can provide. You have this together. See, the gospel calls us out of this radical individualism that we live in to something greater. And again, I've referenced this, so I'm just gonna, I'm gonna put it on the screen. Ephesians 1 from last week. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons, that's the sons and daughters, right? Plural, as like children of God through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You're now in a family, you've been adopted in, you were once without, right? What do adopted kids want? They want a family, I mean, what do orphan children want? They want a family, they want a home. They want a people. They want people to eat with, to have Christmas with, to do whatever. They want a people, a tribe. You now, who are far off, have been brought near. Now you've been made a citizen. You've been made a member of the household of God. You've been brought in. Don't remove yourself. Don't try and live it out here by yourself. You've been brought in. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You cannot live that out in the universal church. You're not a part of the church in Africa. You're not a part of the church in Asia. Unless you go to Asia and you're a part of the church in Asia, then great. You're a part of the local church. Who he says you're like stones being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus as the cornerstone. Remember where we began at the end of chapter 2, that God put all authority under Jesus, that our church is under Jesus. Right? I'm more like the lead teaching pastor or lead elder or whatever. I'm not the senior. Jesus is the senior pastor right? He is our chief shepherd. We as elders shepherd you, but we're sheep too, right? We're, we are the flock. We are part of that and hopefully follow Jesus and lead you towards Jesus because we're members of one another. Stones being laid in a home. Think of like bricks in a brick house, right? You're each one, right? Really hard to make a house out of one brick, who just won't show up, just stays over here. You have to ask that question. Is he actually a part of the house of God? Because we want and should want and should grow to want to be a part of one another. Verse 22, in him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. People take that as individual, like in, in him, in you, you Jeff, you, Alex, right, are being built up as a place for God. No, no, no. And yes, you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. Yes. No, gathered together, you're being built up together as a dwelling place for God that we would begin to shine Jesus to the community we live in. That the building isn't the church, that the service isn't the church, that we are the church and that we live this thing together. Your elders and I are going to take the summer to really lean into what does that mean for us? 
COVID exposed some things to us, the church, to the church in America, when I say larger, like that pastors and elders everywhere are talking about, that Christian organizations are writing articles about and books about, it revealed that the church in America does not understand this collective corporateness, that we are so individual that COVID, for the most part, though it rattled people, people were very good with not gathering. And now people will go to the mall or they'll go to a baseball game or they'll go see family for a holiday or they'll go do this or they'll go do that or go out to a restaurant, but they'll sit at home and watch church. We've lost the value of what we are saved to. If we understand what we're saved from, we have to understand what we're saved to. And we are saved to the body. And so your elders and I have been spending time on this. We spent the weekend together gathering with some other elders and pastors, and, and I've been doing this. That's part of, as I start my sabbatical today, the first 30 days really rest and health and just kind of a disconnect from the last two and a half years that had been COVID and then the years prior, right? But, but also to spend time asking this question, where are we going as a church? All the elders here have started, in fact, along with the deacons and some of the staff, all the community group leaders, have started this 40 days of prayer, just leaning into and praying for some, of this, for some similar things every day together. They're not all gathering all the time, but they're praying about these things and communicating. They're praying for this. One of the things you can do as you pray for me today is you can pray that we will hear where God is taking us as a church. And this weekend as we met, we decided we were going to take it a step further. There's two changes you're going to see throughout the summer here. One you've kind of been seeing, so... Alex led us in, a, in, in more prayer in our service. And you're going to see that more throughout the summer. We're going to spend more time praying as a family. Our worship leaders will lead us through that. Our elders will participate in that. But also, we're going to abstain from communion for the next two, three months. Just it's abstain from that just as a way of, almost like fasting, almost saying, we're going to not till we figure out, okay, God, what are you calling us to? We're going to hold off for a minute on this thing that we love, that we appreciate, and that is a means of grace to us until we can identify, like, hey, what is it you're trying to say to us right now? Where are you taking us? Where are we missing? Where are we going the wrong way? Where are we overlooking sin and just acting like it doesn't exist? Where, where are we contributing to this individualism? that doesn't call us to live out the, I think it's 27 directed one another's in the New Testament. Where, God, would you change us and call us to this? And so we're going to abstain. And it'll be a weekly reminder for us that we are seeking something from God. You with me? That we are going to withhold to remind ourselves, are we praying, God, will you lead us? Will you give our elders clear vision as they meet tomorrow night without me and pray and gather and have some of these conversations as they meet again in a month without me? And then in a couple months, we're actually pushing that meeting out a, a week so I can meet with them when I come back and just hear what has God been saying? So would you join us? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for our elders? our leadership, 
Would you pray for our church? We believe God is saying something right now that is unique to us, that he's calling us somewhere. And that we as a church collectively need to go and need to follow, need to listen to identify, God, where are you taking us? Here's what I can say as kind of a, a parenthetical note. Honestly, as, a, as churches go, we're doing well. Like you're the church down the street. There's some churches out there that are struggling. But we sense God wanting to do something amazing here. And we don't know exactly what that is yet. We sense God calling us to something more. If you were around last fall, going through Acts together, we sense God calling us to something. And so now we're asking God, what is it? So would you join us in praying us? When you come to church and we don't do communion, we remember, hey, I want to pray for our leaders, pray for our elders. So I'm going to invite Alex, you and the band want to come back up. I want to read this to you. It's out of 1 Peter. We'll put it on the screen. I want you to hear another author, another disciple of Jesus. I want you to hear what he says about us. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, you, the church. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, Jesus' own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Same as like death to life, out of darkness into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're a God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you are in Christ here today, you are new. You are alive. You are in the light, and you have received mercy. You are not without hope, not without promise, not without a people. You have a people. And this people will not look like each other. We look like our neighborhood, maybe. But this will overcome ethnic, economic, whatever, background, because we'll become God's people, no longer defined by the world that we live in or the sin that we have had. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. You came and entered into our story so that we could become like you. You became like us. As one of the ancient fathers said 1,700 years ago, you became like us so that we could become like you. You became human that we might become the family of God. Help us to lean into that. Help us to value that when we don't. Help us to appreciate the one another in the room and live the one another's of Scripture as we hear them throughout the summer, as we continue in Ephesians, as we get into Philippians, as we land in Colossians at the end. Help us to hear what you're calling us collectively to. We want to be your people. We want to love one another deeply. We want to look different than the world we're in, and we want to do the work that you have called us to do. And if we're here today and we don't want that, I pray that you would cause us to want that. And then help us to hear your voice that we might press into that. I thank you for my brothers and sisters here at Generations. I love them. I love being a pastor here. I enjoy my church. And when I say my church, the church I belong to, it is your church. Help us together, collectively, as a body, to lean into what that means for us. It's in your name we pray.